welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast and find the information useful. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Jeff Limkuhl, your host, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Chris Toich. Chris is a forage specialist, uh, came to us a few years ago, actually several years ago now, uh, via Virginia Tech. Chris, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and um, how you got to go to Princeton, Kentucky? (laughs) <laughs> well, I started out. Um, I started out growing up on a, a crop and livestock farm in Northeast Ohio, and um, after high school, I lacked direction, so I went into the military, and I spent four years in the Navy. And uh, after I got away from the farm, I found out how much I really missed agriculture. So um, after uh, after my military service, I went into an exchange program with Germany and lived and worked on German dairy farm and went to a German agriculture school. I came back to the United States and did a bachelor's and and master's in agronomy at Ohio State University. And then I had the good fortune of coming to the University of Kentucky for a PhD where I worked on a landscape scale grazing study on reclaimed mine land. And um, when I finished that in 2000, I got hired at a great land grant school, uh, Virginia Tech, and I worked at an outlying experiment station for 17 years in Virginia, which was a a great experience, great support. And um, in 2017, Dr. Lacefield's position after he retired came open in Princeton, and I applied for that and moved back to Kentucky in 2017, and that's been a great great move for me professionally and and also for my family personally so we're really happy to be back in Kentucky. Well, Dr. Toich, I, I, I know that um, we are all happy that you joined us and you've been a great uh, addition to the forage team here as well as the livestock programming and you bring in a lot of um, practical and applied science and, and I think that's always good because you take things out to the farms and do some on-farm demonstrations that help producers see the benefits of new technologies that they might consider on the forward side. So we've we've enjoyed having you here. So we, we're glad we were able to hook you and pull you back over here to Kentucky. So I thought maybe, Chris, what we could do today is, you know, it, it's been a little bit of a challenging year across a lot of the U.S. with regards to forage production and precipitation and this he seems to follow a couple years, and hay stocks are a little bit low. Um, prices have certainly gone up, even even in our area, which I have always argued that when I first came in 08, I found actually a, a USDA forage report uh, for hay sales in Kentucky when they were still doing them. And when I got here in 08, the prices for hay were basically the same as they were back in the mid-80s in that report. So the maybe value of forage production or the cost of forage production hasn't really been looked at very closely until recently with prices of fuel going up, fertilizer going up. So 
I thought maybe we could spend a little time chatting about, you know, now's a good time to think about what we might be doing come March, April to try and boost forage production after kind of a dry year. So let's, I guess my first question to you would be, you know, let's think about this hay production and, and how much nutrients are we actually pulling off when we take a, you know, a normal year's of hay crop off of a, of a, our forage production ground. So, so if we look at the amount of nutrients in a ton of hay, we're removing around somewhere between 40 and 60 pounds of nitrogen per ton of hay, depending on the crude protein concentration. And, and we're removing around 15 pounds of phosphorus as P205 and somewhere around um, 40 to 60 pounds of K2O or, or potash per ton of hay. And then we multiply that by, say, we have a fairly decent yield. Our average yields are around two and a half tons. Say we have a three-ton yield. All of a sudden, we're removing, you know, around 120 to 150 pounds of nitrogen. We're removing around 45 to 60 pounds of P2O5 per acre. And um, and then the biggie is potash. We're removing around... Um, somewhere between 150 and 180 pounds of potash per acre. I can almost always tell, when I look at a soil test report, I can tell almost always tell you if it's a hayfield or not, because potash is always low in on most soil test reports for hayfields. We, we do a fairly good job with nitrogen, but potash we usually fall behind in, in terms of fertilization, and that's been a especially true the last couple of years when fertilizer prices have been so high. Fortunately for us, fertilizer prices have really moderated, and we're back down to, to what I would say still a little bit high, but much more reasonable levels for phosphorus and potassium. So it may be a good time, you know, if, if you've gotten behind on on your fertilization program for your hay fields to, to really get a soil test and think about getting some phosphorus and potash back on those on those hay fields. So Chris, you mentioned the soil test and and um, I mean what's the benefits of getting a soil test versus just running out there with triple nineteen at some you know, three hundred pounds of triple nineteen to the acre like a lot of people have done in the past. So so the um the big benefit is, is that it allows you to target your fertilizer application. So if if I don't need phosphorus, say I was on a, a, field, a hay field where it had been in tobacco previously, generally those are going to be pretty high in phosphorus. So there's really no need for that phosphorus fertilizer. And that's what the soil test allows you to do. It allows you to determine what you need and what you don't need and then target that application to that particular field. In that that's a much more efficient way of using your fertilizer dollars than just putting on triple 19. The other problem with using triple 19 is the, um, generally we under apply potash when we use a complete fertilizer like that. And potash will drive your yields down. One of the first calls I went on when I came to Kentucky was a um, Bermuda grass cash hay producer on the other side of the uh, land between the lakes. And um, he said, I don't know what's happening. He says, but my yields have just kept getting lower and lower and lower. So when we sat down and went through his soil test data, he was very low in, in potash. 
in his hay fields, and they had just kind of been drawn down over time. And after we got that corrected, his yields have re- really rebounded. So the uh, it, it's kind of, you know, and comparatively, it's kind of like taking a forage test and finding out what kind of nutrients we have in there and balancing the supplement program for a cow. But here we're just thinking about pulling that soil test to find out what the soil actually needs for that forage production. That's right. To give us that base level of soil fertility. Yeah. So in in regards to, you know, the last couple of years of thinking about these higher fertilizer prices, um, you know, hay inventory again is low and you know, producers have indicated they had about half to maybe two thirds of uh, first cutting yields this year because we had kind of a cool spring and then all of a sudden um, things just went to, to head and, and they just didn't see good yields. And what, what could they be thinking about doing right now to get those hay fields in better shape to try to boost hay production next spring? So, so probably the, the most important thing is to make sure that we have fertility where we need it. So soil test right now, and if we need phosphorus and potassium, now's a good time to get it on. The other, the other item in terms of soil fertility we don't want to forget about is, is our soil pH. Soil pH impacts the availability of all the other nutrients in the soil. So when we get a really low soil pH, and our, our soils tend to go towards low soil pH over time, um, we impact the plant availability of those nutrients. And generally speaking, things like phosphorus and potassium are going to be less plant available. So if we apply lime to get our pH at that range of 6 to 6.4 for most pastures and hay fields, we're going to increase the availability of all the other nutrients in the soil. So I always tell people if, you know, if you have limited funds for, for fertilizer, which everybody does, you know, the first thing we should really be thinking about is lime to get that soil pH in that range of 6 to 6.4. That's a good point. And I think, you know, when, when we think about um, soil pH and, and that change too, we also, you know, soil types change a lot from across the state. And um, we need to be thinking about that as regards to, you know, up here in central Kentucky, we're on kind of that bedrock lime kind of base and our pH tends to be pretty good, but that doesn't hold just because we're here and we go to western Kentucky, eastern Kentucky, that changes dramatically. Mm-hmm. And that, that soil test really allows you to take those differences in, in geography into account. So you mentioned phosphorus and potash application now would be okay, but um, you didn't say anything about nitrogen. So when would you like to see that maybe applied? Well, we, we've been doing some interesting work here at the research station at Princeton, looking at fall fertilization uh, um, with nitrogen. So, there's a little bit, it's a little bit different approach than we've taken in the past. In the past, you know, we've always tried to get our nitrogen on by September 1st, and then that allowed us to stockpile that grass for winter grazing. And that's still a great approach because it's going to reduce the number of, of hay feeding days. That works best when we have a really good stand of fescue and, and we have the ability, and that stand has the ability to respond. Where it doesn't work so well is where we have a really thin stand that's been overgrazed all summer. 
And even when we put nitrogen on by September 1st, we that stand just doesn't have the ability to respond as well. So one of the management practices I think is that is important if we're going to stockpile a field is to prevent overgrazing during the summer months. Now we've done some work more recently that's pretty interesting where we've taken a, um, this was in a hayfield situation and we've put late fall, early winter nitrogen on it at different rates and looked at what that did the next spring in terms of hay yield. And where we applied fall nitrogen um, on December 1st, so that's really late after Thanksgiving, those stands had increased production in the spring, even with the same fertilizer rate in the spring. So we had about 20, somewhere between 22 and 25 pounds of dry matter per unit of nitrogen applied in the fall that following spring. So what's that tell us? It tells us that that fall nitrogen is, is helping that plant get ready to grow in the spring. And, and this is not something that's new. The turf grass guys have known this for forever and they've been recommending fall nitrogen fertilization for a long time. You don't get a lot of growth from that fall applied nitrogen, but you do get that benefit of earlier spring green up and increased yield in tillery in the spring. Do we have to have a certain soil temperature for that conversion of urea to available nitrogen to the plants? I mean, when you said December, I mean, is, is there kind of a, so a window? I, I, probably, I probably wouldn't go any later than um, around December 1st. You know, mm -hmm. in, in that mid-November mid to late November would be ideal around Thanksgiving but you want to put it on when that plant's actively growing. So, so you want that, that plant to be able to sequester that nitrogen in the root system of the plant so that it's ready to grow in the spring. So we still got to have those similar conditions. We got to have some precipitation, some soil moisture and, and that to right. be able to capture that. Yeah. The, the one nice thing about uh, applying nitrogen a little bit later in the fall is that our chance of volatilization of urea. So volatilization is when when that urea fertilizer turns into a gas in gas that volatilizes off the field and it's lost. Those conditions happen the most when the temperatures are warmer. So these late fall nitrogen applications, we expect very low rates of volatilization. That's excellent. That's yeah, I've always heard of, you know that on the turf side about that fall application and we talked about it or at least what I think I've heard is folks say it helps to increase tillering and some of that of the plants. Mm -hmm. It makes good sense why we might think about that on our fall pastures, especially if we find similar yields to that spring application. It gives us a wider window to get some of that fertilization done, particularly on folks that are maybe cropping or are still doing the back and they just can't find the time in the fall to get that down. Yeah. And, so and that may be a good practice if you had some some pastures or hay fields that were a little bit thinner that you w wanted to give a little extra attention to in the fall. You know, putting on that forty to sixty pounds of nitrogen around Thanksgiving could help uh, get those fields in shape for the following spring. Yeah, and that especially like those south facing slopes that get a little more sun and tend to you know warm up a little quicker in the spring. We might really see a a jump in those. So what about? Um, 
you know, again, thinking about, I, I know some folks that have been feeding hay since September because there's been spots that just had, haven't received much rain this year. And they're probably going to have some beat up pastures and, and that. And if we don't get something seeded, we are going to see an increase in weeds potentially. Um, and they're probably grazed down pretty tight. You know, we see that with following a drought. What about you know, thinking about soil fertility and coming in with something like red, white clover in February for interseeding and taking advantage of clovers to capture that nitrogen. Are there some things we need to think about there? Yep, for sure. So, um, so you know, a lot of times when we have these stands that are a little bit thinner than we would like, it's a good opportunity to get some clover back in our pastures. And as, as you know, um, uh, some of the work that the USDA research unit has been doing on campus has really shown the benefits of red clover in terms of uh, mitigating tall fescue toxicosis, increasing forage quality and animal performance. So it's a good opportunity to frost seed some clover back in those pastures. And one of the prerequisites for getting a good stand with frost seeding is is to have a close, closely grazed sod, which unfortunately in many cases we, we have. And... Um, so getting on there and um, overseeding some, some clover, I like to do it in uh, early to mid-February. You know, we used to say later, but, but I think with our milder winters, we're, we're better off to get them on a little bit earlier and, and make sure that we've got those freezing and thawing cycles that cause the soil to heave and, and take that seed into the soil surface. Frost seeding works best with red and white clover, not not as well with alfalfa because alfalfa is not as tolerant of, of shading as red and white clover um, are. So generally, a good uh, a good amount would be you know one to two pounds of white clover and somewhere in that range of around six to eight pounds of red clover, and we would broadcast that on in in um, in mid February or so. It's important to to make sure that you're you're driving, you know, close enough together that you're not going to have any skips in the pasture, and that your seeding rate's right. And, and both those can be a, a challenge because sometimes it's hard to see where we where we drive have driven in a pasture unless there's snow on the ground, and that's where um, something like a, a low cost GPS unit can really come in handy because it'll kind of keep you on the right track so you don't have those skips or overlaps. We did some interesting work. We had a, a small study where we um, looked at um, frost seeding where we with or without GPS units and where we didn't have a GPS unit, our operators, we had two different operators, tended to overlap more than skip, which was a little bit interesting to me. And the overlap was significant. It was about 30% overlap, which which can really add to the bottom line in terms of seed cost. So with that GPS unit, we reduced that 30% overlap down to around 3%. So it was a significant increase. So if you can use or borrow or a small portable GPS unit for frost seeding, I mean, that's a real big benefit. And and you were using a unit that goes, if I remember right, this was broadcast seeding with an ATV or UTV, correct? That's correct. Yeah, we're just using a little portable GPS unit that you could mount right on the UTV. Yeah, so so not a huge investment per se. 
Yeah, I mean it's um, they've gone up a little bit in price. When we when we did the initial study, they were about fifteen hundred dollars, and they they were probably about five hundred dollars more because of inflation and so forth. But they're we're looking somewhere around two thousand dollars for a, a small portable GPS unit, and there's um, there's a number of different models on the market, and and if you're on Facebook, you'll see those things pop up every now and then for some some different units. We've we've tried over the years. Um, I probably tried four different types, and I have my favorite, but but I don't want to broadcast that on a uh, extension program. But most of them will do a pretty good job if you get used to them. Well, that's that's certainly something that you know counties could think of as you know cost share dollars and some of that that they could loan out to folks. And yeah, that's a yep. good good piece of equipment. Yep. The, the key is, uh, you know, finding a unit and getting it set up so that a producer can just stick it on and go. Yeah. You don't want him to have to struggle with trying to find the right settings on it. Good point. Sure. So if we're going to frost seed, um, there, you know, that fertility issue comes to back into play, right? What are some of those limitations or thoughts on fertility? So, so our improved legumes like red clover and white clover really um, need a, a medium level or higher of soil fertility. So if you've got a, a pasture that's in the very low range and you can't afford to put a lot of fertilizer on it, then then it makes the investment in seed for overseeding more difficult because they're just not going to be productive. Now, one of the one of the options for a farm like that, so say I'm on a rented farm and I've got, um, you know, not the best soil fertility and um, you know, I don't have a long-term lease that's going to allow me to invest in things like lime and fertilizer. Something like annual lespedeza may be a, a reasonable choice for overseeding onto those pastures. It's not quite as productive as red and white clover under good growing conditions, but but it's it's more tolerant of um, lower fertility and lower pH in those pastures. That's a good point. Yeah. And and the challenge with it is is seed availability and price. You know, it it comes from a lot of times those areas in the the central plain states, if you will, where drought can hit that and hit that seed crop pretty easily. And I've seen seed go from anywhere from seventy five cents and to a dollar a pound up to almost four or five dollars a pound, and sometimes you can't even get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that can be a challenge. I think we paid. Um... We seeded a little bit at the research station last year and paid about two or two twenty-five a pound for annual espadiza. Um, one of the other challenges, Jeff, is that there's there's a number of varieties of annual espadiza available, but but they're not really available. Um, we have Marion that was developed in Missouri, which is, this has been a good variety, but but that seed is not available. We've got um, there's one called Legend. Uh, Lespedeza, which is a kind of a commercially developed variety, and uh, it's not really available. Uh, there's been some seed contamination in uh, seed fields in Missouri, where where some of that uh, seed is produced. And right now, about all we can get is a, a Korean Kobe mix uh, variety, not stated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a that is a little bit of a challenge. You don't know what you're getting and yield wise, but it is certainly yep. an option. 
the last thing I'll just mention with um, with annual espadiza is that with our improved clovers, we usually get clover that's been coated with a kind of a fine lime-based seed coating, and that's got the the bacteria that's needed for nitrogen fixation um, on the seed coating or in the seed coating. That doesn't happen with annual espadiza, so it's important if you're going to try annual espadiza, make sure you get the the correct inoculum and inoculate that seed prior to broadcasting out in the pasture. That's a good point. That can be done with a little bit of, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but a little, little water molasses and just to get it a little sticky to stick to the seed or some other way to do that. Yep. Yep. So um, we, we talked in about, you know, renovation a little bit um, with, frost seeding but what about grasses if we've got some stands that you know were really mistreated this summer and and some of the plants have maybe died out what could be thinking about now as far as grass wise to come in this spring on on pastures and maybe even hay fields but i'm thinking here more pastures to try to promote a little more forage growth and get some rapid spring production particularly for folks that may be really tight on hay supplies and need to get out there grazing a little bit early and then yet still get good production through the summer and, and the rest of the year. So, so you're asking for a lot. I am, ain't I? <laughs> and we're going to get yeah. perfect rain next year. And... I, I guess I'll just start out and say that our, our perennial cool season grasses, things like orchard grass and um, tall fescue and maybe a little bluegrass, they're, they're most always best suited for seeding in late summer or early fall. One of the problems with, with interseeding those into the pastures is you're not going to get much production that first year. But the other problem is, is that you've got a tremendous amount of competition from summer annual grasses like crabgrass, goosegrass, foxtail, which really, in many cases, prevent them from establishing when you try to establish them in a, with a spring seeding. So that's one of the big challenges with the cool season grass, cool season perennial grasses. So that kind of brings us to this next question of what what can we do as we move forward um, in terms of uh, increasing the production in those pastures. And and I think you've got a couple potential things that we can do. We can get in there in late February, early March, and we can interseed a cereal an annual cereal and, and the two that come to mind that will work the best would be oats, a uh, spring oat, um, getting that in there early spring oats can make a, a significant amount of dry matter. It's not a miracle, but it's, and it's going to be a one cut, right? When we, when we get it up there and we get to the milk stage and we either harvest it as forage or we graze it. Once that growing point gets moved, removed, that spring oats not going to regrow anymore. The, uh, you could seed a spring oat in an annual ryegrass and the annual ryegrass will will kind of pick up after the spring oat leaves off and regrow until temperature until temperature high temperature start to limit growth in late spring or early summer that could be a good option and um, so you could either use those alone or you can make them in a combination or a mixture and interseed into the pastures um, now, the one thing to remember about annuals, whether they're cereal, whether they're uh, cool season cereals or um, or warm season grasses, is that annuals are going to be more expensive than perennial pastures, and that's just something you've got to keep in the, the back of your mind. They're good for 
emergency situations are good for a, a kind of a break crop in a pasture renovation cycle, but your whole system needs to be based on well-adapted perennial forage species. The other, so the, the other thing along that side, Chris, so they probably take a little bit um, additional fertility, right? That's right. So generally speaking, both um, cool season grasses and warm season grasses are, are going to like a little bit of um, a little bit of fertility. So our, our P and K should be in the medium range. Generally, our pH over six, and um, and then we'll need a little bit of nitrogen to get them going and and uh, get that production that we need to have to make that investment feasible. So that's a, a good thing to keep in mind. I was going to mention um, summer annuals, and summer annuals can be an option too if you got a real thin sod this works best if we're if we have a thin sod and we can intercede something like a, the one that i found that works the best for drilling into a thin sod would be a sorghum sedan because they just have the most vigorous regrowth vigorous emergence and uh productivity in the early seedling stage to get up and around that sod that works good in a thin sod but if you've got a decent stand of fescue that doesn't work as well as you would like in most cases the the last option that I'll mention is one that's kind of a little bit more out there, and that would be um, crabgrass. You know, if we've got a thin fescue stand, that means we've got space between those plants. Broadcasting some crabgrass on in late winter or early spring um, that can germinate and fill those thin stands in can provide a significant amount of dry matter production during the during the summer months. And uh, and you could use that for summer grazing, or a lot of people will use crabgrass um, for for a summer hay crop. So that's another another option. So we'll just kind of to come back and, and summarize and just hit on this. So oats and ryegrass, if we were to do that as a cool season option in the spring, um, no-till drilling those. Yep. And, and with annual ryegrass we could potentially broadcast if we did it alone right it's one of the ones that does pretty well with with broadcasting of all of our grasses annual ryegrass would be the the best one that we could broadcast on if you're going to do that you want to do that early um so that it'll have plenty of time to germinate most everything will germinate the best if we get get that seed in contact with the soil so that's important to understand is that when we get a good soil to seed contact, that seed has the best chance of germinating and producing a viable seedling. Um, if we broadcast it on the soil surface, and we can do that with annual ryegrass, we're counting on having enough moisture from the top or um, rainfall to get that seed germinated and established, which which can happen for sure, but doesn't doesn't always if we have a dry spring. And so you mentioned the same with, with then with. Um um crabgrass about broadcasting so should we broadcast and then run like a harrow behind it or, or are we going to no-till drill that i mean i that sometimes i've seen guys try to no-till drill crabgrass and they get it too deep and it just doesn't come up yeah you're you're right on the money crabgrass is a small seeded forage so it's um it's often difficult to to no-till drill successfully i feel like you're almost better off to to broadcast it on and then if you have a pasture harrow to just kind of run it over after you broadcast it to get some 
contact between the seed and the soil. Um, the other thing I mentioned about crabgrass is that the seed's kind of kind of fluffy, you know, kind of light. So um, you almost have to mix it with a carrier, and a carrier could be a, a fertilizer or pelleted limestone or cracked corn or something to get the flow through the cedar. Now, it's important to remember when you broadcast that that mixture out, it's going to throw the crabgrass about a third as far as it throws the carrier because the crabgrass seed's not as heavy. So if it's throwing, say, uh, 30 feet, you're probably only throwing your crabgrass 10 feet or so. So you're going to have to drive a little bit closer together. Now, one, one particular crabgrass variety that um, comes with a, a clay coating on it, and that clay coating really, to, to me, it, it makes the handling of the crabgrass and the broadcasting a lot easier because it gives the seed some weight and it makes it flow through the spreader well. And, um, and the seed's a little bit cheaper, but, but you're still paying a premium for that carrier, right? Because it's making up about 40% of the seed by weight. So if you're going to seed, um, say, your target is three pounds of actual crabgrass seed, you need to seed about double that to get the right amount of seed out if you're using a coated crabgrass seed. That's a good point. So then, then um, I guess the other option we might have is, is use the animals if it's you know early enough in the spring and it's pretty wet that we could use some high density grazing to try and get that hoof traffic to push that seed down in the soil. That will certainly help uh, get that soil to seed contact. If you can get that seed on before the uh, before you graze it. And that's one of the management practices that I, I don't think we talked enough about with overseeding clover into pastures is that we, we kind of graze it close and then broadcast our seed on and forget about it. You know, a better management practice may be to, to graze it close, broadcast your seed on, and then just leave the animals on that pasture. And that does a couple of things. It does that hoof action that you were talking about to help incorporate some of that seed into the soil. The other thing it does is things start to break loose in the spring. The animals are there to control that that spring competition from the existing sod. And that that often opens that sod up and lets more light into those uh, clover seedlings that have just germinated and, and are struggling to get enough light in a, a dense sod. And do you have a general recommendation of you know, once you start seeing clover seedlings come up, when should you pull animals off for fear of nipping them off? Yeah, so so people get really nervous that you're gonna you're gonna kill those clover seedlings with the the hoof action. But generally speaking, you know, I would let them get several inches tall, and um, when they start really nipping them off with grazing, then take the animals out. And you are gonna lose some seedlings to to animal damage, but but if you don't control that that competition from the side, you'll have a, a stand failure. So everything you'll lose everything. Good point. Yeah, I think sometimes we think we have to baby that stand and we really do need yeah. to control that competition because that, that spring grass grows pretty quick and it will shade all those yeah. seedlings out. So, Chris, this has been a good discussion. And so as we think about um, kind of jumping on uh, to now, making some decisions and making some plans to get seed bought and all that so we're ready to go in the springtime, is there anything else that kind of runs across your mind uh, to be thinking about now before we hit that 
kind of February window for frost seeding or March for seeding? Yep. So, so it's always important to be ready to, to do something, you know, regardless of what you want to do. So, uh, don't wait till the day before you want to frost seed to get your seeder out and get it calibrated and make sure that it's working. Don't wait the last minute to order your seed. So it's a good good time right now to get out there and uh, go to the co-op and tell them what you're looking for and uh, make sure that they'll have that seed for you when you're ready to go. Last thing I'll mention is that um, we've got a great variety testing program here in Kentucky. So if you're looking for improved forage varieties, whether it's grass or clover, you can go to our webpage, just search UKY uh, forages, and it'll bring up our webpage and there'll be a box on there that says variety testing. Just click on that. Of all the red clover seed out there, you know, Kenland is still one of the best varieties that was developed here in Kentucky. It's not new, you know, but it's a great variety but it's a public variety. And the one thing I want to mention about being a public variety is that when you use a public variety like Kenlin, you want to look for that blue tag. And that blue tag indicates that it's certified seed. And that guarantees that you're getting the genetics stated on the outside of the bag. If I buy uncertified Kenlin seed, it does not mean that it's Kenlin in the bag. It could be anything. So that's really important that if you're going to use Kenlin, get certified seed. And you can ask your um, your local co-op about that and whether they have that. Now, most of the newer varieties are, are protected under the Plant Variety Protection Act. So that means that what they're advertising on the bag, that's what's in the bag. And then lastly, we're going to buy this seed. We want to make sure that we have a seeder that's going to put it down at the rate that we want. And it seems like people get in a rush and get in a hurry and forget to calibrate that drill. You've got some resources available for calibrating different drills too, right? Sure. Um, if you go to our webpage, we've got information about uh, drill calibration. If you go to our YouTube channel, there's a really nice drill calibration video on there. We've also got a, a video on our um, our YouTube site on calibrating spinner seeders. So spinner seeders are, are a frustrating thing to calibrate. And I'll just mention that we're we're working with a new spinner spinner seeder that is out of Austria that is potentially the easiest to calibrate that I've ever seen in my entire life. And we've got four of those seeders that we're going to be demoing around the state this this winter so we're pretty excited about that so if you're interested in in having one of those demos on your farm contact your local extension agent and chris on on um the the youtube website it's it's ky forages if they just go to youtube is that correct yep if you just search ky forages all one word youtube it'll be the first thing that pops up and then i'll, I'll just mention on the on the YouTube page, there's two search bars. There's one at the top, and the one at the top searches all of YouTube. But if you go to the one in the center of the page, it's smaller, and um, you put what you want in, it just searches that particular YouTube channel. Good point. That That's a really good point. And then lastly, for um, the variety trial information and other resources, um, if I just go to my search engine, what, what can I type in there again to make sure I can get to that page pretty easy? So just type in UKY, that's like University of Kentucky, um, 
forages and that'll be the first page that pops up and then on that page all of our information is organized underneath um, icons or tiles on that page so you just click on the variety testing one and it'll bring up the latest variety testing information all right. Well, thanks for having me today. Chris, we appreciate you sharing with us. And again, so a few take-homes. What you can do now is soil test, put on that P and K that might be needed. Maybe put down a little bit of nitrogen yet uh, before December 1, but we're running out of time to get that done. Um, think about frost seeding your white clovers uh, in mid-February. And then if you really need them, uh, think about some of these uh, annual forages and, and differences between no-till drill versus maybe uh, broadcasting and dragging behind that. Chris, appreciate you joining us on today's episode. And um, if you have any questions, again, feel free to reach out to your county extension agent and uh, they can provide you with some resources and also get you in contact with Dr. Toich if you need additional follow-up information. Chris, appreciate you being here again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. We hope you found it enjoyable and informative. Be sure to subscribe to the Beef Bits podcast for future episodes as well as listen to previous ones. Until next time, be safe and reach out to your county extension office for more information on beef management topics.